today on Ag News Daily. Are they here to stay? Most likely, and I, and I say most likely because it's an improvement upon the purebred animal. They'll always be in our industry and because there's no reason to go back to a purebred Jersey or a purebred Holstein for the terminal animal. September 15th, this is a Thursday version of the Agnes Daily Podcast brought to you by your soy checkoff. Tanner Winterhop joined, again joined by Cassidy Zirkel. How's Cassidy doing? I'm good, Tanner. Happy to still be with you this morning and the weather is still great. It's a great Thursday. Absolutely. What a great day here. And I think we've got some great news in the news to share with the listeners for today. Someday Delaney will be back. We uh, don't try to guess anymore, but for today, we are going to rock this news delivery day. One of the big headlines, of course, comes with the rail sector. Late Wednesday, though, Congress was trying to work on their own package to intervene before a union deal was reached. Bernie Sanders was blocking the Republican pro proposal to override workers and stop an impending rail strike said it was time for Congress to stand on the side of American workers. So he blocked the Republican resolution to avert the strike. Republicans wanted Congress to step in and enact contract recommendations. Sanders stated that the workers deserved their request of paid sick leave and uh, improved working conditions. However, you know, as we get into this story, the congressional acts were not needed. However, they were not going to get done in time due to the embattlement inside Congress. The CEOs of the freight rail industry need to understand that they can't have it all, was a word, a line said by Sanders in his speech on Wednesday. The rail industry must agree to the contract that is fair and just. Of course, senators from North Carolina and Mississippi wanted Congress to pass a set of recommendations from a presidentially appointed bipartisan panel to avert the strike, even if workers did not voluntarily agree to the deal. So it's good to see that we didn't need these actions. It was bad, Cassidy, to see that Congress couldn't unite to potentially avoid a crisis here in the U.S. Yeah, Tanner, and the article that Delaney actually sent over to us this morning does say that the tentative agreement reached last night is something that Biden is calling a win. So hopefully this is going to help us to buy some time before the strike goes into place. Yeah, it looks like the details haven't been immediately released. Obviously, we know what both sides of the parties were seeking for. Rails workers wanted better pay, improved working conditions, peace of mind around their health care costs, all things that they determined to be hard earned. Of course, President Biden left a very long statement after 9 p.m. last night when a deal was reached. This deal, Cassidy, now moves to union members for a ratification vote. This is standard procedure, as we've been told, as part of labor talks, but they have agreed not to strike while the vote is tallied. So it's not done yet, Cassidy, but they are not going to strike while they're collecting votes from I believe it's over 150,000 union members. Yes, Tanner, and it is good news because we do know that even a short delay of the strike, if things don't come to fruition from their votes, will give us a little bit of a break in the immediate spike that would come from a strike in food and fuel and other prices as inflation is already a major factor in our lives. 
Right. We've reported that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has stated that it would cost $2 billion a day in lacked commerce as far as transportation goes. We know that Amtrak has canceled across the country. Uh, I was going to call them flights, but they wouldn't be flights. Cross-country trips, Cassidy. Uh, so it's good to see that things are working to go. Of course, we're looking here. Some of the leaked terms is that rail employees are getting a 24% rage increase over the next five years. Uh, looking at immediate payout of potential $11,000 uh, upfront bonuses. Uh, looking at potential PTO balances and needs for doctor visits being met. So a lot more details to come out. I'm sure we're, this won't be the last time this week that we will talk about it. Of course, after the deadline, you know, no longer matters for Friday since a deal has tentatively been reached. The cooling off period comes next if there is no deal reached. So agreed to no strike at this point in time. We'll wait to see the results of the votes and the details of the bill or of the agreement when they are made available. Well, Tanner, switching over from a little bit of good news to some not so great news coming from the Pacific Northwest. This is not an industry we talk about much, but it looks like crabbers in the Pacific Northwest are getting some bad news this time of year. A survey is conducted every year to test the population of mature male snow crab in the Bering Sea region. And this year, the population of mature male snow crab is actually down 22% from 2021. Due to these lower levels, the authority on snow crab harvesting actually lowers the numbers of crabs that these fishermen can harvest each year. So the lower number of population also translates to a lower harvest and lower profit for these crabbers. And it's actually the lowest level population in more than 40 years. Yeah, that's not good news. I can't remember the source where I read the article, but I've been hearing that the increased temperatures where turtles nest is causing a lack of male turtles. So there's concern for reproduction in the turtle community for sea turtles, as most of them are hatching as females. And I might have had that backwards. It might be less females and more males, but I, I think uh, I stated that correctly. So interesting to watch as our sea-bearing listeners and those that uh, appreciate aquaculture can have some headlines to monitor. Back to discussions around the bill that we discussed, the funding from the USDA we discussed yesterday. The American Soybean Association is applauding the action coming out of the latest biotech executive order. So they're stating that the in a press release that the bioeconomy is receiving great support. ASA's President Brad Doyle says the new executive order will also contribute to regulatory reform in ag biotech. This means for you in agriculture that there will be an initiative with involving a cabinet of agencies providing new investments and resources as part of that executive order. We talked about some of the funding, but it looks like $500 million will be made available in the summer of 2022. That's this period right now for American fertilizer production. So we're getting a boost in our fertilizer funding. $68 million is promoting safe innovation in ag and alternative products, according to the White House. $270 million is building supply chain resilience. I think that's uh, definitely focus on the rail discussions that have come out 
through 1 billion tons of bio-based materials such as fuel and chemicals will also receive funding. At this time, the USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack said American products will be a focus, especially when it comes to ag products, including fertilizer. So obviously, some good money being put towards things that can benefit us here. Vilsack reports in uh, future needs is land conversation, land conservation, food quality and nutrition pests and disease control and alternative food sources. So it'll be interesting to see, Cassidy, who gets appointed to this cabinet full of leaders to help monitor these funds. That will be interesting to watch, Tanner. We'll have to keep that in our minds so that we can report on it when that comes out. Taking things overseas, I know we've talked a lot about avian influenza lately, but one disease we haven't touched on much is foot and mouth disease. Australia's government has actually banned the import of any meat products for personal use in order to keep tackling the issue of foot and mouth disease. Australia is currently foot and mouth disease free. This is part of their approach on keeping the country free and tackling that disease. Nice. That is great to hear. Let's pause before our next story for a message from our sponsor for today. Who mapped the soybean genome? You did. Yes, you. Better varieties are on the way. Today's soybean farmers, that's you, are achieving big breakthroughs in seed. How? By pooling your resources through your soy checkoff. Your soy checkoff research sequenced the soybean genome to help seed companies and other researchers bring better varieties faster to your operation. See all the ways your soy checkoff is moving soy forward for you at unitedsoybean.org slash hopper. We just heard from the soy checkoff, but don't forget about our corn producers. Ethanol outputs, however, dropped to the lowest in the last four months. This last week, ethanol production plunged for plunged to a level lower than the last four months of productions, and also inventories declined. I know last week we had output rise and inventories declined, so it's good to see demand up there. The seven-day output ended for September 9th, 963,000 barrels per day. We had been over a million at one point during this summer. That's down from 989 last week. So a significant drop in production there. While stockpiles are continuing to drop, they've also dropped to their lowest level in the last two months. Ethanol inventories declined to 22.843 million barrels in the week ending September 9th, down from 23.5 three three so a big decline there it's time from the outside Cassidy it looks like to ramp up some ethanol production maybe there's just a shortage of supply waiting for this fall crop to get harvested well Tanner speaking of corn harvest golden harvest actually released data earlier this week saying that they are predicting for all of the corn harvest in the midwest to be highly variable They're giving some tips to farmers to evaluate their crop and get the best harvest they can by evaluating their potential drought impacts, being aware of the effects of the extreme heat and the loss that may have caused in their fields, and selecting the best products from their fields in order to up their harvest as much as they can. Yeah, that's good. That's advancements for us. Well, I don't have a lot of extra news. Do you have another piece before we jump into the markets? Before you jump into markets, Tanner, let's stop. One more time for a message from our sponsor, the U.S. Soy Checkoff. Who's the number one protein source in chicken feed? You are. That's right. You're winning. Today's soybean farmers, that's you, are really big in animal egg. How? 
by pooling your resources through your soy checkoff. Your soy checkoff is working with poultry and livestock producers, growing existing relationships and forging new ones to bring tangible returns back to you. See all the ways your soy checkoff is moving soy forward for you at unitedsoybean.org slash hopper. All right. I teased everybody saying we're going to jump into markets. I did this yesterday, too, but I found one more headline here quick. The right to repair bills that have been discussed earlier this year are on the clock. It looks like if there is no deal reached, if there is not a committee presentation, because right now the right to repair bills, five of them, have not made it to the Senate Commerce or the House Energy and Commerce Committees yet. If they don't get made into a bill or law by the end of November, the day November 14th, they will disappear and will have to be represented. So not good news on the right to repair front. As we jump into markets and take a look here for our listeners, December corn is at 687 and a quarter of five cents March contracts are 692 up four and five eighths. The November soybean contract down a penny on the day and January also down just two tenths. There is a little bit of momentum in the wrong direction, Casty, as we look at the wheat contract for the second day in a row declining off three cents this morning for December at 868. And, and March contract is down two cents today to 885.20. And over to the livestock side of things, live cattle is in green for today, up, up $1.17 to 145.52 for October, December up buck 20. To 151.25. Feeder cattle is down just a quarter off of both contracts, September and October. Lean hogs also in the green for the first time this week at 96.50 for October, up $1.80. And December contract, 87 and an eighth, up $1.87. So that's the markets for today, Cassidy. Who do we get to have a conversation with now? Well, Tanner, I'm super excited to share this conversation with Ty Lawrence from West Texas A&M University talking on the beef on dairy issues in our beef industry. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm super excited to introduce you all to Dr. Ty Lawrence from West Texas A&M University. We're going to have a really cool conversation about beef carcasses and dairy on beef and all types of things surrounding the meat industry. So Ty, why don't you start us off by just giving us a little bit of your background and how you got to WT? Sure. So I I, uh, was raised on a cow-calf operation uh, north of Delhart, Texas, and spent my childhood uh, farming and ranching, uh, driving a tractor, uh, working cattle, fixing fence and windmills, and uh, growing up and learning about agriculture firsthand on uh, my family's operation. And then I had the opportunity to uh, move on into academia, and I started my undergraduate degree at West Texas A&M in 1993 and became uh, interested and then very passionate about the world of meat science from my mentor, Dr. Ted Montgomery, and had the opportunity to work with him for six years, uh, earning a bachelor's and a master's degree. And then I moved on to Kansas State University for a PhD, uh, working with uh, Dr. Michael Dykeman and uh, at Kansas State, and I was there for three years, 
And then I had an opportunity to move into swine, actually, of all things, and worked with uh, Doug Sutton in, uh, at Smithfield Foods for a few years. And after that, I had the opportunity to move home to uh, West Texas A&M and take over the meats program that Dr. Montgomery began. And I've been here now. I've just started my 19th year as, uh, as the meat head at West Texas A&M. Very cool. So just a little bit of the background of the facility there at WT. I know it's so impressive. I've been there to tour it myself. I'm very intrigued by it. And what are some of the main research and main problems y'all are trying to solve there? So uh, historically, our research has focused on how do we improve uh, quality, yield, and food safety in the beef industry? And a lot of your listeners uh, probably are at least somewhat aware of our work in all of those sectors. So years ago, uh, I started what we call the Prime One Project, in which we were cloning and crossbreeding very rare and uh, unique carcasses, those being carcasses that were uh, prime and yield grade one with the genetics to replicate that outcome. And, you know, in a nutshell, I'll say that it worked and we've been able to improve uh, quality and yield simultaneously in the beef herd uh, through that project. Uh, and the beef industry has moved forward, uh, you know, even without those genetics and improved quality substantially uh, just as a rule on their own. Uh, we've also done uh, tremendous work in improving yield through growth promotants and beta agonists and uh, helping the feed the cattle feeder understand how those products alter composition of gain of an animal, and we've provided the the industry, particularly the cattle feeder, the cattle feeding nutritionist, and the beef processor with answers to what those products do uh, when fed various durations uh, for for finished cattle. And more recently, a lot of our work, particularly in the last three years has focused on salmonella and how we can mitigate salmonella as a food safety risk in our fed beef population. So very true to our form, we're, we're working on methods to improve quality, to improve yield, and to improve food safety of our beef industry product. Very cool and very relevant to a lot of our listeners. Another thing that I think would be really relevant which is why I asked you on the show today, is your knowledge on the beef on dairy population in the feeding system today. I know a lot of people are really excited about this topic, but you kind of put a different spin on it and showed us the negative sides. In a nutshell, I know you had a huge speech that was really great, and I wish I could share it with our listeners. But in a nutshell, what are the negative sides of this growing beef on dairy population? So there's there's a few negatives that uh, that are, are worthy of mention. Uh, one that I, I started on with my discussion the other day was there's an excessive rate of intact testicles. So most of those uh, dairy calves, whether they're beef on dairy or purebred dairy calves, are banded very early and young in life, and we see an excessive number of those that have one testicle remaining uh, when they're, you know, when they're harvested. And those lead to excess rates of bullers and just, you know, aggression in the pen. And that, uh, that detracts from the carcass quality. 
in as much as we're seeing greater rates of bruise trim in dairy cattle and dairy cross cattle, and we see darker lean color in those populations as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other big challenge that we that we see pretty frequently is compromised lung health. Um, in our database, the the dairy animal, whether it be a dairy cross or a, or a purebred, again doesn't really matter. Only about 20% of those calves that we observe in our research have a healthy lung, which means the uh, the greater percentage of of 80% have some evidence of compromised lung health. So they've, they've faced a viral and or bacterial challenge in the past that damaged a portion of their lung. And then the, the issue that is uh, kind of a head scratcher for a lot of the industry is uh, lactating heifers. Uh, lactating heifers that never received, uh, you know, never been exposed to a bull, never received a, an AI straw, and we we do see that particularly in the in the dairy population it's been a, a question more so recently in dairy beef as to why this occurs and all i can tell our listeners is it's an estrogen or an estrone issue in that when these cattle get excessively fat the uh, the fat cells have the capacity to produce estrogen or and or estrone on their own uh, without further stimulation and then that can cause those heifers to lactate. Uh, one of the things that's uh, a little bit humorous and a little bit unexpected that I shared with the uh, the CAV folks uh, was the fact that I've actually milked two steers uh, in, in recent years here at West Texas A&M. And those steers, uh, one of those was a purebred jersey and one of those was uh, an F1 jersey cross. And uh, again, both of those animals were extremely fat but again, the fat cells had produced uh, enough estrogen or estrone to cause those animals to lactate. Mm-hmm. The first time I saw it, I was a little taken aback myself, and then I did some research into it, and it's actually a thing in dairy uh, dairy goats, a kind of a well-documented thing, in fact, that uh, an intact male dairy goat can also be milked, which is uh, a little bit unusual, but it's, uh, it is a thing. And uh, the one thing that the that our packer partners really asked me to share with the audience is what I call the ugly of, uh, of dairy cross beef. And that's the excessive rates of liver abscesses that we see day in and day out uh, as we evaluate these animals at, at harvest. And in the last uh, 12 months, our database suggests that a dairy cross animal uh, has a 68% probability of, of having a liver abscess. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, uh, as compared to other types of cattle, we're only seeing about 27% of steers and about 21% of heifers with a, a liver abscess. And in our in our purebred Holstein population, we're only observing about 28% of those with have liver abscess. So the dairy the dairy beef crosses really stand out as a as a kind of a conundrum in the liver abscess issue, and it it leads to some issues at the beef processor that they have trouble dealing with. And so they're, they're really looking for the industry to, to figure this out uh, so that they have an animal that doesn't detract from all the positives, you know, and that's one of the things I mentioned last week at the, at the CAB meeting, there's a ton of positives in these critters, but there's one major negative that really takes away from all of the positives right. and that being the liver abscesses. 
So what's your consensus? Do you think Darion Biff is here to stay? Do you think these problems are not going to be solved? And how much of the population do you think they're going to account for in the coming years? So uh, lots of lots of lots of different statements there. <laughs> are they here to stay? Most likely, and I and I say most likely because it's an improvement upon the purebred animal. They'll always be in our industry uh, because there's no reason to go back to a purebred Jersey or a purebred Holstein for the terminal animal. What what will happen is if if the major negative being the, the liver abscess isn't figured out, there'll be packer buyers who they just won't buy them. Right. And we're already seeing that in some cases where if there's an opportunity to buy an animal with fewer problems, then you just pass these by and you go buy an animal with fewer problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we're literally seeing that in the marketplace now. So the, the cattle feeder and and points in you know in front of the cattle feeder are going to have to figure out how to manage the animal differently so that they don't arrive at the beef processor with a problem that will have to be figured out or they'll find themselves owning an animal that is unmarketable right well ty if our listeners want to get in touch with you or keep up with the research that is happening at west texas a&m how can they find you and where can they go to do that so the best way to find me is to email me Uh, and i say that because i'm not that often in my office that i happen to be in right now so uh, email me at uh, t l a w r e n c e t lawrence at w t a m u period e d u and you can also uh, call my office and leave me a voicemail uh, 806-651-2560 and i will get back in touch uh, when i am available Great. Really enjoyed talking with you, Ty. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Tanner, I'm super happy to have gotten to have that conversation with Ty. A big shout out to our friends at Certified Angus Beef for bringing him to the Feeding Quality Forum and giving me the opportunity to connect with him there and make this awesome conversation available to our listeners. That's right. I'm glad that you had time to put the conversation together. Appreciate you doing that. Listeners, we appreciate you hanging out with us. Find Ag News Daily on all your social media platforms. Give us a follow. Share us with your friends. Also, wherever you listen to your podcast, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. But for today, what do you think, Cassidy? Is that enough? Let's let them go, Tanner. <laughs>